You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode number 58. I'm a doctor. I've lived for over 2,000 years. I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Shush. Hi, I'm Don Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. Today we're discussing Twice Upon a Time, The Twelfth Doctor's Regeneration, and the 2017 Christmas Special. Joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Merry Christmas, Father Corey. Merry Christmas to you as well. And yes, we do think it's Christmas. After Christmas is still Christmas. It's still Christmas. And Merry Christmas, Jimmy Aiken. Merry Christmas, Dom. So uh, it is our Christmas special. We're celebrating Christmas. And the only way I know to celebrate Christmas uh, after spending it with family is to sit down in a room and look at the box and watch Doctor Who. So <laughs> which we did. We have our first first new episode of Doctor Who in many months. Uh, not as long as the, the, the previous drought. But uh, still, we're, it's been since July since we've had a new episode of Doctor Who. And we, pick, we pick up uh, where we left off. So... Uh, let me start by playing the sound of the trailer. Love, pride, hate, fear. Have you no emotions, sir? I'm the doctor. I am the doctor. Something has gone very wrong with time. Twice Upon a Time. Uh, so just as a quick recap, although you all have seen this already, we'll just I'll just quickly recap it. Uh, we have two doctors. We have Peter Capaldi playing the 12th Doctor for the last time uh, in an original series, which who knows if he'll ever come back for a Seven Doctors special or something like that. But let's just for the sake of argument say <laughs> we're gonna, we, it's his last time. and Last uh, regular appearance. Exactly. And uh, we have David Bradley playing the first Doctor, uh, who was originally played by William Hartnell, and we just talked about David Bradley, who played William Hartnell, playing the first Doctor in Adventure in Space and Time in uh, our most recent episode of The Secrets <laughs> of Doctor Who. Confused so, yet? So now it's, now it's one step less meta. Yes. Because now he's just playing the Doctor directly. Yes, exactly. So, uh, so it, and uh, it picks up ex uh, right from where we left off with the previous episode, The Doctor Falls. Uh, with uh, the the 12th doctor kneeling in the snow uh, uh re holding back from regenerating um there the uh we have a british army captain who stumbles upon the scene who is pulled out of the first world war uh we have uh these magical aliens who show up uh these glass alien type creatures um who talk about a timeline error and then we have this uh, attempt by the doctor to figure out who they are and get 
get the timeline back in its regular way while trying to figure out whether to regenerate or die. Uh, and that's pretty much the, the, the gist of it. And there isn't a whole lot else going on in this, uh, (laughs) which is to say that we'll talk for two hours about it, but it's a straightforward plot. It is. It's pretty simple. It's kind of meditative compared to other things. And I, I noticed some people commenting on how rather than try to do a breakneck action packed, no time to catch your breath thing, which is kind of what we had in the in the final few episodes of um, of, of Peter Capaldi, that this is a much more, you know, kind of pulled back meditative time to reflect before the regeneration. Well, and, and and very different from the way they that they handled it with uh, Matt Smith's final episodes, which were breakneck, run as fast as you can, explosions everywhere sort of stuff. Uh, I mean, this had some action in it, but I, I have to be honest, I felt it was almost anticlimactic. Mm-hmm. You know, after the drama of the Doctor Falls, which was a big, you know, cinematic type of episode, and then months of speculation about. The you know what's going to happen? It's a Christmas special. The first Doctor's going to be there. Oh, we're going to have the thirteenth Doctor's going to be a woman. All this stuff. It felt like all the energy had been expended by the time so we got let, to this. So well, okay. So let's talk about that for just a second. Um, it, originally, this was not planned to be a thing. Um, originally, uh, Stephen Moffat was going to leave at the end of the last season. And Chris Chibnall was going to do the Christmas special. But then Chris Chibnall said he wasn't interested in doing a Christmas special, at least this year, because he wanted more time to prep for his first season. And so uh, Stephen Moffat was afraid if they didn't do a Christmas special this year, that they'd lose that high value TV viewing slot in future years. And so he rearranged some of the stuff he was going to do at the end of this season and then wrote this episode as the Christmas special. So it's kind of tacked on in a certain way. Um, it, I don't I don't know what would have happened differently at the end of the previous season, but that was originally planned to be his exit. And he stepped in at the last minute to do this in order to preserve the viewing slot. Well, that, so that, would so ex- that could explain some of what your experience was, Don. Well, and, and that could also explain why it felt more like a uh, Stephen Moffat retrospective than it did anything else. It was all characters and things that he pulled kind of from his past. Or at least, mm-hmm. especially the the Capaldi era of his time at Doctor Who, you know, because you had you know the Dalek from the inside the Dal in the Dalek and all the that second stuff. Capaldi episode, yeah, right, and you know, of course, Clara. It's spoilers, by the way, um, and of course, Bill and Nardole and all you know all these all these figures where it just it felt like Moffat wanted to go back and be retrospective of his time and Capaldi's time as the Doctor. Did you guys ever, did you guys ever watch the Survivor TV series? Mm-mm. So at the end of each season, the the last two survivors they walk along this this path past the, all the torches of their fallen competitors, and at each torch they stop and leave a memento and remember something about that that com, that competitor that they that they had some hand in eliminating uh, at one point. And it's kind of felt like like that. This was sort of like a, mm-hmm. a farewell tour, a a retrospective, and and it was a meditative, as you said, Jimmy, a, a meditative retrospective where 
he you know we got at the end of the Doctor Falls we got the big speech the the uh, the 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 whole um, dramatic end. I mean that essentially the was pair speech yeah. right. And but this is more of you know what does it mean to be the Doctor? What does it mean to to be to you know to to again to create uh, Doctor Who the TV series. It felt more like that and more like a look back, not just over the time of either even Stephen Moffat's era, but by bringing in the first Doctor, being able to reach back to the beginning. What is what is Doctor Who and what does it mean to the people who make it? Yeah. And that's what and it kind that, of felt like. That insight I like and I agree with that by reaching back to the very first Doctor, we put what does it mean to be the doctor and is it worth being the doctor on the table? Now, mm -hmm. I have some criticisms we can get to of how well they handled that issue, but that's mm -hmm. what they were trying to do. And, and I appreciate that. I also don't mind the retrospective aspect um, when you're a wh whether it's a retrospective for the departing actor or the departing showrunner, you know, doing doing a retrospective at the end is fine. And that's actually something we've seen. Uh, going back a long ways in Doctor Who, we had that start with the departure of Tom Baker, where for mm -hmm. the first time we had companion flashbacks as he was about to regenerate. And that's been something that there have been some bumps along the way. But uh, but there have been even in Night of the Doctor, where we got to see very briefly the eighth Doctor's regeneration, even he names his companions yep. uh, as as he's about to regenerate. And so the modern uh, cameos we got, like with Amy Pond and Matt Smith's regeneration or Clara and uh, so forth here, that's just a modern version of those companion flashbacks. Mm -hmm. And I don't mind that kind of stuff. Um, and, and, you know, like one thing we'll get to by the end of the episode is Peter Capaldi's farewell speech or valedictory speech. That's heavily pulled from from retrospective things. My question is not, is it retrospective? That's fine. It's just how well do they do it? Right. But 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 Dom, you 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 used the word anticlimactic earlier. Did that characterize fundamentally how you felt about this episode? Or what was your overall impression? Overall, so for me, endings are never satisfying. You can never like every <laughs> every TV series has ever ended. I have not liked the last episode. And you're and like it, the Doctor. You don't like goodbyes. I, I don't. And 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 in the same way. Whenever we change doctors, it's like the end of a TV series. And mm -hmm. I mean, a new one's starting up, but this is going to be different, different actor, different showrunner, that sort of thing. And so it's so it's sort of similar. So when Lost ended or, you know, whatever, I, I, By the I, way, I don't spoil me on Lost's ending. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, OK. So they're they're all um, too late. No, yeah, just kidding. No. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, but, but but whatever, like, you know, there I know there are people dissatisfied I, and I. I often accept it, I, you know, and the things that are things I like, but I'm, uh, there's you you can never tell the whole story. There's still some left on the table, um, so in that sense, uh, uh, you know, was it a good Doctor Who episode? Yes. Was it Capaldi's finest moment? No, I don't think it was necessarily, mm -hmm. and I don't think it was one of Moffat's greatest moments. And, and I and I think there's a weakness in that. Because they've set in the modern era, they've tied regeneration to Christmas. They've they've limited themselves to always having this sort of Christmassy regeneration thing going on, 
And yeah, and it's, it's two things fighting each other. Yeah, and 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 I felt like we're trying to hold on to too many threads at once, and and so, I mean, it sounds like I didn't like the episode. I did like the episode, but I feel like uh, it there there was some potential left on the cutting room floor on the in the writers' room, uh, in and they and they ended up limiting themselves in this way. Father Corey, what did you think? You no, know, I I enjoyed the episode but it felt so disjointed to me because you had like three or four different things happening. And it just went, okay, we're at the South pole. You had the meeting of the of Peter Capaldi and the first doctor. That was great. And we had the, the, the captain come in. That was great. And then all of a sudden we're on the spaceship and all of a sudden, then we're out at some other world where there's the Dalek and then we're, you know, and it's just, we're jumping around. It really right. felt, you know, and, and maybe part of that, the fact is that Stephen Moffat basically had to throw it together at the last second. Maybe there were some things that could have been ironed out better. Um, just some real loose threads, but I, I enjoyed the episode all in all. Um, I did like, I did like the way they played in from the 10th planet into this episode. So let's, and let's David jump Bradley, into that. Yeah. Let's yeah. Well, wait, 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 let me give yeah. my, let me give my yeah, overall get, Jimmy thing. All right. Jimmy. <laughs> Whatever. So, okay. <laughs> so I I enjoyed the episode. I liked it a lot. Uh, for me, normally I'm all about plot, uh, but not this time. Um, as soon as they announced David Bradley was going to be the first Doctor in it, it's like that completely changed what I wanted out of this. I didn't want plot. And, and really, I wouldn't have anyway because it's a regeneration story. What I want in, in a regeneration story but especially um, a, a story that brings together two doctors is I want character. Mm -hmm. um, I want time to explore these characters. I want to see how they interact. Uh, that's where this, the heart of this kind of episode is for me. And, and so I think it paid off in that regard. We got a lot of nice interaction uh, between the two doctors. They shrunk the cast so that really there's only like four main characters in this and a few walk-ons, and we have a lot of time to explore the dynamics among those four characters. That was great. I enjoyed that. I think there were, I, I didn't think it was the best Doctor Who I've ever seen. Um, actually, I think it was less annoying than Matt Smith's regeneration, um, you know, which had that big, interminable montage-covered thousand-year Christmas wait in it. Mm -hmm. um, and then the over-the-top bragging, blasting things out of the sky at the end of it. Um, <laughs> so, so, so I appreciated the 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 waiting until death on a conceptual level, but I just hated the way it was handled. In this, uh, I thought it was much more satisfying. Uh, I will have some criticisms, but basically, I enjoyed the episode, and frankly. You know, I've had, even though I like some of the things Moffat has done very much, I've kind of got Moffat fatigue at this point. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of ready for Moffat to go. And, and frankly, I, you know, Capaldi, even though I, I, I warmed up to him as they warmed up his character over the course <laughs> of three seasons, is like kind of, he's not my favorite doctor either. So I'm kind of ready for him to go. Unfortunately, now I have a sense of dread about the future, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> All right. Well, th uh, thank you, Jimmy. And, and actually, the one point I wanted to uh, I wanted to make that I didn't, which was, it felt like when the end when the end of the episode came, I was like, already. It just felt like there wasn't mm -hmm. a lot mm -hmm. that a lot didn't happen 
before we got to the end. But part of that is because you got to wrap everything up before you do the, the big regeneration scene. So mm-hmm. I think that's part of it. All right. So, uh, Father Corey, you mentioned we start, uh, well, we start with a look back at um, uh, a, a, a clip Tenth from Planet. a yeah. clip from 10th Planet. Uh, which previously we st- on Doctor Who, seven hundred and eight episodes ago, that was <laughs> yeah, awesome. exactly. <laughs> that was great, uh, and the, so it is actually seven hundred eight or nine episodes to the first tenth uh, planet uh, episode of that serial. Um, they showed us some of the footage, uh, and then they recreated some of the footage from the the missing mm-hmm. fourth episode of the tenth planet. We've talked about this again. We've talked about this in our. Uh, uh, episode number of uh, the secrets of Doctor Who number forty. Uh, that there was this 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 fourth the fourth episode of that serial is missing, and they've recreated it using uh, animation and stuff like that. So they didn't want to do that here, so they recreated the scene, uh, the with David Bradley and then two actors playing Polly and Ben, his companions at the time, mm-hmm. which was kind of funny, and it was. It was they actually went with the cheesy set. I mean, it was it oh, looked yeah. like something that had, would have been built in the '60s for Star Trek or Doctor Who or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I like the I like the morph too, where they they morphed from uh, William Hartnell to David Bradley. Yeah, yeah and they brought the great. color in as it morphed. I thought that was a that was a very nice touch to kind of make that connection between the two actors. Yeah, I mean, again, we've we've said before how much they look alike. Uh, although their voices aren't very much alike, as I realized as they did that morph, but it was very clever that 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 work they did to to make that well, happen. I, I think I think David Bradley is such a good actor; he was, he's able to take on the mannerisms, yeah. of, of William Hartnell, and I think that's a big part of it. Is because I mean, there's actually when you look at the age difference, William Hartnell was in his fifties; David Bradley is 80. 75. 75. 75. So I mean, there's a big age difference, but he's able to take on the mannerisms, so he. Looks like him. Yeah, so people are better preserved these days than they were in William Hartnell's too. era. Yes, that's true too. <laughs> um, so the, apparently the uh, the footage of the regeneration itself of of uh, the first Doctor's actual regeneration that we see again mm-hmm. was is from that lost episode. But they yes. have actual footage of that because it was used in a 1973 episode of the children's show Blue Peter. So th- mm-hmm. that was in the Blue Peter archives, not the Doctor Who archives. Which is just yeah. kind of funny. Well, and there and there are little snippets uh, throughout these lost episodes from the first two Doctors that you know people would actually point like an eight millimeter camera at their TV and take they call it telesnaps. Yep. Um, there would be again something like that where they would re- reuse a scene later for something else. By the way, at some point we're going to talk about Shada, the episode fourth Doctor episode Shada when we can finally mm-hmm. everybody all of us get it. Um, there are scenes from that that were reused in later episode in a later episode, the fifth, yeah, the five doctors, the fifth, five doctors uh, episode. So Doctor Who has done this before, where they've reused these episodes. Well, that means some of the lost episodes we have clips from them because of that. Uh, I think Star Trek did that with the rocks on the planets. Anyway, uh, oh yeah. <laughs> in, in fact, I saw an interview once with the seventh Doctor, Sylvester McCoy, talking about when he was a kid. He was such a Star Trek fan. There was like one rock that he identified and he would watch it through the different Star Trek episodes. (laughs) Well, Doctor Who liked to do that, too, because they always had the uh, quarries. It was the same rock quarry they would film in. (laughs) Uh, So 
what we have is, so we know that the, the 12th doctor is re- reluctant to regenerate. And when they won't, when they don't regenerate, it means they will die. They've been injured. And if they refuse to regenerate, they'll die. And so the 12th and, and doctors. They've established that they can refuse to regenerate. The master did that once during David Tennant's era. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, we've established that with also with the 12th doctor at the end of the Doctor Falls. And now we have the first doctor. And that, that unwillingness to regenerate wasn't in the actual episode as it was released, the 10th Planet episode. But it was apparently in the original shooting script. It just got left out. Uh, you know, it was cut by you know for the by the director for time, I guess. Um, well, also, uh, uh, William Hartnell's health was so precarious at the time that he like disappeared for a whole episode in that serial, and right. that's kind of what they're playing around the edges of. Right. Uh, yes. In fact, and that's we, we now we know where he went, where the doctor went. He he went with his uh, later incarnation, yeah. and so. Uh, the, this refusal of the two doctors to regenerate and in the same place uh, creates an error in the timeline, um, which. Yeah. Now, pres- presumably all of this is secretly being orchestrated by the TARDIS itself. Right. That, you know, to the TARDIS knows about these two points in his timeline <clears throat> and brings the two doctors together to give them both the confidence to move on with their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we see the hidden hand of the TARDIS here. But <laughs> problem number one for me, they have not properly set up why Peter Capaldi doesn't want to regenerate. I right. don't know. This is something that drops in out of nowhere on us. Now, maybe this is one of those things that Stephen Moffat had to come up with in order to get a Christmas special idea. But... We have no clue why Peter Capaldi suddenly doesn't want to regenerate. And they give us a Correct. couple of lines of dialogue to gesture at it. It's like, oh, yeah. you know, I've seen so many people die. I'm tired of losing people. Well, then why haven't you been moping about that for a season? Mm-hmm. Right. You've suddenly become suicidal over this. There, right. There was there was a, there was some vague references in Dr. Falls, you know, as he was preparing to sacrifice his life, you know, there was, he, he did kind of say a few things in the Dr. Falls that lead you to believe that maybe he doesn't expect to be able to regenerate after taking out all the Cybermen. Um, Which also incidentally is contrary to where he is in his life now. I mean, he's just been given a whole new cycle of regenerations. Psychologically, yeah. he should have big vistas opening up in his mind. See that that was that was the one thing that really irritated me about this episode. It's like, okay, now that we've got this whole new set of cycles, now he's want to give up. Now he wants to quit. Yeah, you know, it's why, like why? it's it, it's like being ninety eight years old and suddenly you're told you're going to be twenty five again. Right. You know, it's like, yeah. wow, think of all the stuff I could do. Exactly. Right. It it, it feels in, uh, imposed from the outside because of the requirements of the story that you want to tell, as opposed to being organic. Uh, in the way that the story has been told to this point, I get mm-hmm. that. Um, so, and and w- and with the first Doctor, we don't really have. I mean, it could be. Uh, it kind of says a little. At one point, he's re- he's reluctant to regenerate because he he hasn't regenerated before. Yeah, and I think afraid. that one was more clear. That one was that, more clear yeah. that he was afraid. He was afraid of what it would be like to go through regeneration. What the next what he would be like after the regeneration, it was uncertainty. And that, that, that one was, I think you could, you could understand and fit with the, 
the understanding of the character and everything. It's just at, the Peter at, Capaldi one didn't. At least a little more. In that case, we have now still, I mean, the reason regeneration exists for Time Lords, because, you know, it's a developed technology, apparently. Mm -hmm. um, but the reason it exists for them is to extend their lives. But if you're old and and your health is failing and you're not feeling well physically, that can have a depressing effect. If you know you're if you've never been through this presumably painful physical process before, I mean, it, like imagine it's surgery without the anesthesia. And if you know you're going to have a massive personality change. Folks, sorry about the interruption uh, there. Uh, we had a little Skype problem. Uh, we lost Jimmy in the midst of his very excellent points about the uh, the first doctor. So, Jimmy, <laughs> if you could pick up the best best you can from where you left off there. Sure. So I was just saying that it's, you know, even though you would think that, well, the first doctor would be thinking, hey, great, I get to regenerate and have a whole new life now. It's still somewhat understandable why he would be hesitating you know, he's he's at this point, he's physically wearing out. And when when you're physically worn out, it can be depressing. Um, and you may feel like, oh, I'd rather this just end rather than going through a presumably painful physical transformation you've never had before. That could be, for all we know, analogous to surgery without anesthesia. And I mean, they certainly does a lot of destruction to TARDISes when he blows. <laughs> And we'll get to that. we need to talk about that at some point. Yeah. Um, but then also, if you know you're going to have a fundamental personality change and your preferences and values may be very different on the other side of it, all of those would be reasons what that could be daunting if you've never gone through regeneration before. That's true. That's true. Uh, so, yeah, it is. Ex so it's understandable why the first doctor would be would be hesitant. So, um so that we're, they're here in this this moment in in the in the snow at the South Pole. If we didn't say that before, uh, that's where the uh, the events of the Tenth Planet uh, episodes took place. Uh, so they're at the South Pole, and uh, the two doctors have met. And out of the snow comes this soldier, uh, played by Mark Gaddis, a longtime um, uh, Doctor Who writer, well known to uh, all the fans as uh, uh, Mycroft from Sherlock and and some other things. Um, and my, uh, so, uh, Mark Gaddis comes, uh, comes out of the snow, asks if there's a, if, if one of them, um, knows of a doctor and then we, we cut to, uh, the open all of So all of this talking we've done so far has been only up to the, the rolling of the, uh, the opening. Uh, so, uh, and then, uh, once we come back, we don't come back to this moment. We come back to, uh, this, this soldier uh, who we never we don't get his name until the very end, of course, uh, for a very specific reason. Uh, referred to, I think, in the script as the captain, so I'll call him the captain uh, through this. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the captain is. Uh, uh, how, how do you pronounce the name of that battlefield? Ypres, Ypres, Y P R E S. Yeah, I just know it's yes. French. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Ypres uh, in 1914. Uh, there's an and this the captain is in a a, a, a crater in the middle of the no man's mm -hmm. yeah, the, the middle of the no man's land between 
the the two trenches for the uh, the uh, British and the German lines. And he's in this crater in a Mexican standoff with a German soldier. Who did you catch? Who the German soldier was played by? It's Toby, Toby Whithouse, oh, who uh, writer writer of some of the Doctor Who episodes I loathe the most. <laughs> so at this moment, I'm all for Mark Gaddis offing him. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, he does a he does a, a fairly convincing scared German soldier. Uh, I have to say that. Um, uh, the other thing is some of these very extreme close up shots they do are, are kind of like a little too close, a, a little too uh, much high definition on beard stubble and sweat uh, and and that yeah. sort of thing. Uh, I could have done with a little less of that, but uh, you know, it it turns out that this is the first time that Doctor Who has visited the First World War proper. Uh, and what, I say that because uh, the second Doctor, as we talked about in the uh, second Doctor episode, Games of War, or the War Games, sorry, the War Games, war games. the Doctor of War, uh, is that he encounters some World War One soldiers, but that is not, it wasn't actually in World War One itself on Earth. It was on another planet. Uh, but uh, but this is the first time the Doctor has gone to uh, World War One battlefield. Yeah, it, and it's only now, a hundred years later, that the psychology, I guess, maybe has made that comfortable for a children's viewing, family viewing hour show in England. Well, and it's very interesting that uh, we, you know, to take a little broader view, how uh, there seems to be a World War One moment in the popular culture uh, as this year we are commemorating the 100th anniversary of the end of World War One. In 2017. And the Spanish flu. And the, yes, and the Spanish flu. We, although we don't have a Doctor Who episode about that one yet. Um, as far I as I know. Don't get one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, so, you know, you, we have Wonder Woman and other things have, have visited World War I uh, recently. So this seems to be a, but there's a reason we're at this particular place on this particular date on this particular Christmas, which comes up at the end. Uh, but there's a standoff between these two soldiers. Uh, the 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 captain is uh, sto the stoic British officer. He's very, uh, uh, you know, very. Um, See, he's very stiff upper lip with a wax mustache to keep it stiff. Exactly, mm -hmm. but he's very archetypal of that kind of character. So you know, you you get that real sense from him. And uh, just at this moment of their the gu two guns are they're squeezing the triggers. There's this uh, effect ripple effect ripple effect. Um, and everything freezes around him. All the fire and smoke stops. And he encounters this glass creature. Uh, he's transported to some other place uh, and then stumbles out into the snow. Um, it's With a, a woman saying timeline error. Right. It's almost like a robotic woman's voice. Um, and he's stumbling in the snow. And it was a very quick montage of like flashing images. Uh, so we're not quite sure what happens. Um, and then... So they he encounters the two doctors, um, and then they 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 kind of they go into the first doctor. You know, kind of encourages him to go into the what he thinks is his TARDIS. Although he's mm -hmm. surprised that something's wrong with the TARDIS, um, yeah. because of course the TARDIS has changed over the years. The exterior. What, what, one thing I like to I, I kind of like that they did though is they showed that opening really three times, because at the end of last season, you know, we see. Peter Capaldi stu stu stuttering out of the TARDIS, you know, falling out of the TARDIS, and you see the first Doctor coming. 
And then we see it from the first doctor's viewpoint of Peter Capaldi there in the snow. And then we see it from the captain's viewpoint of the two of them sitting there talking. I thought it was mm-hmm. actually kind of an effective way of doing it where they told it from all three sides and brought them all into the story. It's way. very Rashomon. Yes, it is. It, it's true. And and I do like that idea that uh, where we, we've, they show it to us three times, but it's, it's the three different elements. Uh, three different perspectives. Yeah. It mm-hmm. comes together to provide a full picture of what's going on. By the way, one thing I, I should just note before we get, further because this is where they talk about the fact that the time has stopped not mm-hmm. unlike a Skype connection um, <laughs> but uh, but when they're they're and they're, they're like playing with the snowflakes and stuff to demonstrate that time has stopped um, this is some kind of bizarre not how real time stops would be because if time really stopped nothing would move so you have to imagine that there's some kind of general zone where time is stopped, but somehow you're still able to move through it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in a subzone where time is not stopped and then push things around somehow, like you can move a snowflake or mm-hmm. grab a soldier out of a crater or things like that. Somehow they, they, if your zone interacts with their zone, then it, becomes partially animate and you're able to see through all of these zones, even though light is not moving because time is stopped. <laughs> well, not to so mention breathe. This is, yeah, yeah, this is all fairy tale science. Right. But, Wibbly uh, wobbly, tiny wimey. Yeah. We don't need to make a further deal out of right. it. Right. We'll, we'll uh, note it for the record. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, and then the first doctor, as I said, encounters the, uh, the the TARDIS uh, that he thinks is his, but is really uh, the twelfth Doctor's. And it, oh yeah, he thinks he's been burgled. That's great. Right. Yeah, and well, I also love how he thinks that it's hideous because, <laughs> frankly, that's my reaction too. I've hated all of the new TARDIS <laughs> designs in the new era of Doctor Who. They don't have the classic elegance of the original. You know, but well, that, that being said, you know, it is interesting how you can definitely tell that the. Uh, set money has increased dramatically for Doctor Who from the first Doctor's time. Because you look at the first Doctor's TARDIS console room, it's a flat, obviously the floor is the set, uh, the Studio studio floor. There's, you know, it's very simple. You look at the new TARDISes, they're all multi-level and, you know... Well, I, elaborate. I love that they 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 kept the simplicity and and all of the limitations of the original TARDIS in their reconstruction, right down to the fact that where the when the, the doors knacks. open, there's no seam that well, shows it's, it's, that this 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 yeah. is a separate building, a separate building from what's outside. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if you well, notice that. Yeah, mm-hmm. as far as I know, the um, the set they used was the set they used for Adventure in Space and Time. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. which would make sense that it would be a, a Mac uh, exact image of the original set. Yes, uh, and it's but it's nice that you get that contrast. You get that this is what it was versus what it was, and, and yep. in some ways it brings the eras, uh, the two eras of fans together. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, to kind of in, enjoy like this is what was and this is what has become, and and to kind of get that contrast. So I I did like that, and th- there were some funny moments. Um, in in the TARDIS when they first get in there, um, you, you know the always remember where you parked. It's going to come up a lot. Um, <laughs> I what I really liked was that moment when the first Doctor realizes that the twelfth Doctor is him eventually is his regeneration, yeah. 
Uh, although mm. he's not sure at first, he, he do I become you? He thinks he's his immediate regeneration, and then mm -hmm. he says, uh, "I thought I, I assumed I'd get younger." And Capaldi, yeah. I am younger. <laughs> well, it turns out that Capaldi is the same age as Hartnell was uh, at that yeah, moment. Pretty close, pretty close. Well, yeah, it's uh, like just by a few months, even. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I also like the moment where we where you have the captain and it's like, what do you mean? World War One. One. Right. <laughs> well, judging by your uniform. No. Why? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, do you think about it? I mean, how the, uh, is a guy of a man fighting in that the, war? Then it was then it was called the Great War or the War, the war to, to End, end all, wars. all Wars, which yep. it apparently wasn't. Um, now, here's here's where we get to the first. I feel like a real controversial decision here uh, in the portrayal of the first doctor. And that's his constant misogyny throughout this episode, you know, talking about, you know, yeah. and then the 12th doctor, you can't say things like that. Um, and, and I've seen other people point out that the first doctor actually was never that blatantly sexist in this time, probably because the showrunner was a woman. It was Verity Lambert. Yeah. Uh, so I, I wasn't very, I wasn't really happy with that. I felt it was laid it was on a little thick. It was played for humor. And, you know, I, I it, think I, I would have liked it if they would have done it like once or twice. They did it too much. They did it too much. Yeah. You know, then you had that whole scene about, you know, I've got some experience with women. Well, so do I. Of course, they had to put the, the obligatory uh, Bill as uh, Bill as a lesbian Bill is gay comment. Thing. Right. And, and that's not that's not how the two characters would have interpreted that. That's how we, the audience, are meant to take it. And the captain even picks up on it. But in real life, that wouldn't have happened. Um, just it, they would have interpreted her saying, I have some experience with the fairer sex to mean I'm a woman. Duh. I know what right. this is. Yeah. And, and, and like. they wouldn't yeah. have leapt to the lesbian thing. Um, also, and and this is perhaps, a, I, I don't know if it's a, it's not really a statement, but it but if it's a statement about anything, it's about how how much we've progressed. When the doctor in the first doctor gives his line about um, the TARDIS needs a good dusting, it's clear Polly hasn't been around. Mm -hmm. My first thought was not, oh, Polly would dust because she's a woman. My first thought was, oh, Polly must have a special like uh, a special hatred of dust. Yeah. You know, and it's just a personality thing She's rather a than a gender or something thing. like that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so there was so the the the, the misogyny thing was, a, 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 you know, yeah. it was there. It was also, played for some laughs there. And, and I can ex, I can handle it on the played for laughs, but it's also undercutting something else we're doing in this episode, which is um, they've told us that Time Lords really you know they switch that they switch genders at least sometimes when they regenerate, mm -hmm. and that they don't consider gender a big deal. Mm -hmm. It's like okay, well, if they don't consider gender a big deal, then why? W and William Hartnell grew up on Gallifrey, or the first Doctor grew up on Gallifrey. Why would he be? Why would he be misogynistic? That makes no sense. Especially, yeah. and it's especially obvious if you're setting up for the first female regeneration. It, well, I wonder if that's precisely why they did it, uh, to sort of mm. contrast, see how far we've come. Uh, yeah, but at that at that point, you're operating on a societal level, 
instead of a storytelling level. Exactly. And it be, and and that becomes the show is bragging on its own enlightenment instead of telling us a good story. Well, and that's exactly what's happening. Well, and, and that's, that's that, that part of it is exactly what did happen. And that's the that's a fear that many have expressed is you know many fans have expressed which is not that they're opposed per se to a to a woman being a time lord uh, or being the doctor but just that it's being done not to serve the the, the so story or the series or the character, but to it's kind virtue of virtue signaling, right? To be yeah. virtue signaling, and that's a well, fear. And we, we, and we talked about that. We 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 when we discussed the whole announcement of uh, Jodie Whittaker as the the next Doctor and all that. We're well, you know, we don't have a problem with it. You know, we know it can happen. It's been shown on TV. It's been talked about pretty much throughout the entire series. But our concern was, are they going to club us over the head with it every other episode like they did with Bill? Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, hopefully uh, Chris Chibnall is, decides to be a little more uh, subtle than uh, Moffat has been uh, in, in, in his uh, way of dealing with it. So, uh, you know, the, the reason they ran into the TARDIS is because they had encountered the uh, this glass figure that looks sort of like a glass alien. Um, uh, the <laughs> And, and and just a note on that, I can in part because I know Bill is coming back. Yep. I'm seeing this glass alien thing, and the special effect is too close to the Water Woman, mm -hmm. uh, Bill's Bill's friend, Wet Heather. And so, <laughs> Wet Heather. So through so through <laughs> most of this episode until they finally tell us who these are, I'm assuming the glass figures. This is like Heather and Bill. Right. And these and they're made out of water, not glass. Even after they refer to them as glass, what they should have done is changed the effect a little bit and made it like purple glass or something. Mm -hmm. So it's visually different than the than their water forms. Right. They took it. They took the easy road on the on the special effect, I think, on that because it already done it. Um, so they when they encounter this alien, uh, both doctors declare this uh, that a class uh, a class five or level five planet. And then the twelfth doctor says, um, "This planet is protected." And the first doctor is confused, and he says, "Oh, it's early days for you." Uh, in that, that whole <laughs> idea of a protected planet comes from later on in uh, Doctor Who, uh, the Shadow Proclamation. That's New Who, right? Yep. So um, the TARDIS is taken aboard the spaceship of the Testimony. Uh, we we see we've seen this before, where a, an alien spaceship picks up the TARDIS. Uh, and takes it. We've seen unit pick up the TARDIS. Yep, right. Um, they on board the the you know in the chamber of the dead. Uh, the, the this glass creature refers to itself as the testimony. It calls him the Doctor of War, uh, which is interesting because because what do we think immediately of his fans is the War Doctor. Yep. And uh, you know the first Doctor's confused. The twelfth Doctor uh, looks a little guilty, and then. Um, and that gives the first doctor more reason to hesitate to want to regenerate. Right, right. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if I'm going to end up being a, a war doctor, uh, and then uh, we're told that it's a repository of memories. And so let's talk about this whole thing. I, I suppose we should bring all of the different, uh, you know, the, all the discussion of this this repository of memories that occurs throughout the show. Let's talk about it all at once here. Um the, the what happens is this t the testimony foundation travels through time. I'm not sure if they pluck every person who dies uh, out of time or just I, certain people and downloads their memories 
uh, into a database so that they can then be filled into these glass avatars and walk around again. And they refer to it as, hey, all we are is just our memories. So this is me. I'm the real me. Um, and this is as close to heaven as you can get. Yeah, this is this is another unsuccessful <laughs> thing on Stephen Moffat's part. This, um, so it's not true that we're just memories. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, I mean, completely, I mean, from a Christian perspective, you know, there's a soul and so forth. Um, but even apart from that, OK, I was I'm I'm on I'm a being that has continuity over time. And if I forget something, that doesn't mean I'm a different person. If I and I was the same person when I was half my age or when I was a baby, that's still me, um, even though I had very different memories at that time. And I've forgotten most of the things I knew then, but I was still Jimmy Aiken. And whoever you are, you were still you and you will still be you in the future when you've forgotten many of the things you know now and have learned different things. So there's a continuity of identity through time that is not simply memory dependent. That's one problem. Second problem, um, you could, if, if all we were is just data, you could then instantiate that data in multiple different bodies and they can't all be you. It would might be a clone of you or a copy of you, that's fair, but it's not you. Um, third problem, if you're plucking people out of their out of their timeline right before they die and making a Xerox of their memories and then putting them back in the timeline, that person obvious who dies is obviously different than the copy you've got in the database. And it even mm-hmm. continues to have new experiences, even if it's like just for happens, a second. Yeah, <laughs> even if it's just for a second, like what happens with the captain, the captain at the end of this has different memories than and a whole adventure of different memories, not to mention future years than uh, what the uh, testimony version of the captain would have. Well, the, the irony of that is they do this in an episode where it's the first doctor at 1,500 years earlier and the 12th doctor. Yeah. So the first doctor is less the doctor than the 12th doctor because there's 1,500 years of memories, of experiences, of all that is what they're saying. Also, because, because the testimony, and Dom, you're right, they don't tell us who the testimony does this for. My impression was that it's like everybody, but yeah. then I'm going, well then the doctor should already be in the testimony because they're 5 billion years in the future. Maybe they don't do time lords. Maybe it's just humans. But then Nardole shows up at the end, and he's not a human. So mm-hmm. I don't know who the testimony's doing this for. Right. I mean, it's, it's, we get this this uh, moment where they talk about it's they're historians of some sort. or um, The thing that, get, that, that, that makes me think about this is you know, the doctor repudiates that you, you are your memories. So there is a bit of repudiation of this idea. Well, the one of the last lines the doctor says to Nardole and Bill, "You're not even really here. You're just memories held in glass." Right, I mean, and the, that's the, the whole truth. Episode, that's the truth. Yeah, the whole episode is about how oh, this really is Bill. Yeah, it's a, a replicate of Bill, but it really is Bill because all Bill is is her memory. And then the last thing the doctor says to them is, "You're not really here," and they don't say a word about it. They don't agree. Yeah. They don't change. You know, it's just it now kind of shoots the whole argument. Yeah. Now think about this: yeah. the doctor, in his in, when he regenerates, is no longer the person he was, except for his memories and experiences. Right? 
I mean, is I don't know whether we know, you know, whether the whether Time Lord DNA persists through regenerations, but certainly they look different, they act different. The only thing well, that persists kind of, from one to the other is their memories, right? Well, there's got to be a physical substrate that persists, mm-hmm. or or they wouldn't keep regenerating. There's got to be something that carries right. that process forward. Okay. So there's some kind of physical continuity, but he is a very different person. Um, on the narrative level, the whole I've I'm the real Bill. I'm the I'm 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 I've got her memories thing. The whole point of that is so that we'll feel emotion for this character. Mm-hmm. And and although it's also to sustain drama a little bit about is this the real Bill or not? Well, they could I don't need to know this is the exact same Bill that became a Cyberman. It's fine for me if you just say, well, look, I've got Bill's memories. I'm the closest you're going to get. And then we move on with the story, and it's yep. fine. I can accept her as Bill on those terms. I don't need this constant protesting that I'm the real Bill based on philosophical nonsense. Yeah, and, you know, it's very interesting that, you know, the doctor, um, he, when the last he had seen a Bill, she was a Cyberman. You know, he was right. knocked out. He was uh, unconscious um, when Heather had come along and, and saved Bill. Um, and so she had gone off to have adventures with Wet Heather, uh, flying through the universe, just like Clara did with Ashilda. Um, so how is it she's here? Is this are we to are we to presume that at the end of Bill's life, at whatever point that happened, as a water woman, as a, yeah, so so many thousands mm-hmm. or hundreds of years in the future, that she was she became a glass woman. That she became so she was harvested then. Um, yeah. Okay. I, yeah, because this this version knows about Heather. And so this this is a this must be an a copy based on something at the end of Bill's own life. Okay, so they didn't uh, go and grab her before she became a Cyberman, <laughs> right? So um, we have a moment where the uh, the the twelfth Doctor pulls out his sonic screwdriver, and the first Doctor you know is shocked by it because he he didn't have a sonic screwdriver. The that was the second Doctor. Um, An audible screwdriver. I love that line. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And so and, this is a second Doctor in introduction, and so that would suggest these things are not common among Time Lords. It's not like an iPhone. So if he didn't know what it was, yeah. and we now have a time, uh, we now have a nice um, uh, time paradox because it was it would then be seeing the twelfth Doctor's sonic screwdriver that became a memory of the first doctor that led the second doctor to create one. <laughs> well, and although the 12th doctor has no memories of this episode, so it might, uh, you know, of what happened. So maybe the uh, first doctor's memory when he goes back into his proper timeline gets erased or reset. There's, there's been sketchiness about how much time words remember when they cross their own timeline. It's yeah. obviously not nothing, but it's obviously not everything either. Right, right. Uh, he also we uh, we have the uh, uh, remarking upon the sonic sunglasses uh, and the law of TV monocles comes into effect. If you see someone mm-hmm. wearing a monocle in the TV show, they will at some point get surprised and it will drop out of their eye. That's yeah. <laughs> it's required by the TV writer's code or something. Oh, and, and this could be I'd have to rewatch the scene, but we get the monocle and the sunglasses in the same scene. It's yep. kind of like in the in the day of the doctor where you have David Tennant and um, <laughs> um, 
and Matt Smith uh, arguing about whose uh, whose sonic screwdriver is bigger. Here yep. you have one upsmanship with the <laughs> number of number of lenses you've got for your eyes. Right. Uh, I like- no, I love that too. He, he goes, uh, Peter Capaldi says, you know, sun, or there's uh, first doctor says there's sunglasses inside. They're sonic, as if that explains everything. <laughs> yeah, they're sonic. Yeah. <laughs> well, by the way, I think we've I think we've. Uh, I, we, we're at the point where Bill has been reintroduced, right? Yes, she's in the TARDIS so, with the captain. Yeah, so as part of her uh, discussion with the captain, or, well, there's a moment where the captain comes out of the TARDIS, still thinking he was about to die, mm-hmm. and says, you know, did I hear something about this young woman will be released if I give up my life? And well, I'm kind of done anyway, so I'm okay with that. And it, you know, the, the dialogue he's responding to is artfully or not so artfully crafted to be ambiguous. Mm-hmm. So it can bear that interpretation, but doesn't really have that interpretation. And, and I'm not really actually sure what the testimony is trying to say when it delivers that dialogue, because well, yeah. the doctor doesn't need to release anything. Bill just comes on out. Right. Um, but well, then yeah, the, said, the thing that said the, that they could talk to him again, talk to her again. Right. Uh, but then they just let that happen without the doctor agreeing to anything. And, um, and, and but then after Bill starts talking to him and the captain comes out and volunteers to die, which is very British of him, not very believable, but very British of him, um, in the good sense. Um, Bill suddenly objects. Why is Bill objecting if she's testimony? Mm-hmm. This is exactly what sh- this is exactly the testimony plan is to put this guy back on the battlefield. And um, Bill shouldn't be suddenly objecting to that. Why is he? Unless the only reason I can think of is she's trying to deceive the doctors into thinking she's not testimony, but then she like totally admits it later. I think so. I think the 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 timeline error has has given the testimony the opportunity to to glean some information from the two doctors because later on when Bill is quizzing the first doctor. When they're on uh, Villain Guard, um, you know, the, there's she's asking him these questions, and she says something about "I'm really good at asking questions," and so I think the testimony is taking this opportunity to, mm. to you know, to to, to to I don't know, add to its knowledge of some sort. Um, okay. So, well, and, I, well, and there's if, also if that's sense, the case, I don't I don't think they set it up well. Yeah. Well, there's also the sense I think too where this is supposed to be again playing into that your memory is the sum of who you are. And so since this is a as you used it an avatar of Bill, then it's going to act like Bill would act in this situation. Is what they're trying to say. Where the right. personality it, and the decisions that would be made would be influenced by the memories of the person that they're storing. Even though it's, until it's an it avatar. stops acting like Bill and is exactly. totally on board with the let's put this guy back in his death situation. Bit. Exactly. So the the doctor quizzes Bill, what should I do? And she says, do what you always do. Uh, and then he monologues. Serve at the pleasure of Earth. I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that seems very strange. I totally strange. didn't understand that. Line. Well, what does Earth have to do with anything? It's, it's all about this one guy. 
But okay. Yeah. So then he monologues his escape plan, but the first doctor calls him on it, which is great. Why are you telling them what you're going to do? Yeah, I know. That was awesome. <laughs> I love this meta moment of because the modern series has this braggadocio problem, and I love the first doctor calling them on it. <laughs> Uh, it it shows that Moffat is a little a little self aware at least little self aware. So um, uh, the the testimony shows the samples of the doctor's memories throughout his history, uh, and the doctor says it's a it's it'll be a bad idea to do this. Why does he? Why is it a bad idea? The twelfth doctor says that. Why is it a bad idea for the testimony to show these? memories again that, you know well the, again the, the first doctor doesn't want to regenerate because he doesn't know what's coming he doesn't know what's going to happen he doesn't know what his future is going to hold and then all of a sudden he sees these pictures of him in these situations his future selves in this situation i think it's i think the at least that was my impression was yeah. it was reinforcing this it's, idea of the first doctor not to regenerate it's that it's also um that time lords are not supposed to cross their own timeline so they don't know about their futures there's a let the future happen right. without knowing about it ethic at least for yourself okay he says he makes a joke about uh, something about uh, uh it it doesn't have all the jokes you know you, you see it like that you don't see all the yeah. jokes yeah, that was good. I like that. <laughs> so they escape through the trap door uh, by sliding down the chains uh, and they, they let the TARDIS go. They let the testimony take the TARDIS because the doctor remembers that there's another TARDIS 70 feet over that way. And so they, they run to the first doctor's TARDIS, which we talked about before, um, which is a, a great reconstruction. Um, mm -hmm. The first doctor is surprised when the the 12th doctor uh uh, shows that he can actually navigate the ship in you know to a particular destination because of course we mm -hmm. know that the that that first doctor and I, mean, I think even the second doctor they they were uh, completely at the mercy of the TARDIS's randomness taking them mm -hmm. here there and everywhere so um, so apparently it's not just the navigational system it's he knows how to use it better now right right <laughs> he's had time to learn how um so the so they're, they go to this planet, Villengard, which is at the center of the universe, because it's always, all these things have to be at the center of the universe. And uh, we've heard of this planet before. Right. Um, which it was mentioned in uh, the Ninth Doctor episode, The Doctor Dances, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. the second part of, the, of a two-part episode that began with Empty Child, which was the first, I think it was the first story that Moffat wrote for Doctor Who, wasn't it? In canon, he had previously written Curse of the Fatal Death. Okay. Yep. And that story, The Empty Child, Dr. Dances, won Moffat a Hugo Award. That's just an interesting... Uh, the, so it's a little bit of Moffat revisiting his past, I think, in, in some ways, mm -hmm. it's, uh, as we already discussed. Uh, so And the plant, planet's a was a weapons foundry. Yes. Um, that the doctor mm -hmm. then blew up. Yes. And so and it looks cool. I like the exploding moon. Yes, that was pretty cool. Um better than the uh, egg moon. Uh so uh mm -hmm. the um the 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 plan, the reason they're going to this planet is because the both doc well, the first doctor noticed something that the 12th doctor did not, which is that the glass avatar that they were talking to was not merely a robotic representation like a computer generated image, but it was asymmetrical enough to say that this is actual a representation of an actual person. Right. So this is this is a this is 
a reflection on the limitations of our present early 21st century technology, because um, in the future, even if it, even if it's true now that computer generated simulated people wouldn't have facial asymmetries, they will in the future. Mm-hmm. You know, computers yeah. will just add that functionality if they don't already have it. Right. A little chaotic. uh, uh a little, uh, little bit of randomness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so they, they, they go, so the doctor's looking for the biggest database possible. He's, he's on the wrong TARDIS for that. The first doctor's TARDIS hasn't been around long enough to accumulate enough data, I suppose. So he goes to the biggest database he knows, no, knows, sorry, not noses. Um, the, this planet, which. The Dalek path web. Right. The planet is infested with, uh. Uncased Daleks. I, I it was the way. Yeah, I would that put was it. awesome. That was cool. I love the face. The face hunter. <laughs> it was there. definitely that a throwback to Alien. There, that was a pretty good one. Uh, it grabs the captain over the face, uh, sucking on his face. Yeah, after the doctor made you know the the classic blunder of saying, "Oh, I can't." This, this, I'm sure there's nothing uh, but a, a few rats. I, I can handle a rat, and boom, right in his face. It's like uh, R O U S S. I don't believe in them. Uh, yeah, exactly. Princess Bride reference. <laughs> um, so twelve and one, uh, as I'm as I want to call them, uh, insufferably and probably obnoxiously, they go to see the database. Uh, and while resting on their way, they discuss how twelve doesn't remember any of this, and it reminds, um, it reminded me of the episode "The Doctor Falls" and of the two masters not remembering. Uh, yep each other uh and it's so that they've established previously that when the timelines are out of sync uh the the person the person who's crossing his own timeline doesn't always remember and i think we mentioned that earlier uh jimmy uh yeah so they get to the- very plot convenient yes mm-hmm. it is a very very nice MacGuffin. uh at the center of this city that's exploding and you know full of uh daleks uh is Rusty, as we mentioned, the good Dalek from uh, Capaldi's second episode, Into the Dalek, uh, which uh, was the uh, journey to the center of the Dalek, uh, is the other way uh, we could call it. Um, and Rusty, I, I say good with air quotes, you don't see them, but I'm making them, is good in that all other Daleks want to kill him because he hates other Daleks. And so yep. he's killing all the other Daleks. He he does hate the Doctor as well, of course, because he's still a Dalek. But uh, the doctor convinces him to let him come in because he's dying. And don't you want to see that firsthand? Uh, that sort of thing. Um, we, we we flash back to the TARDIS where the captain is uh, staying there with Bill, uh, Glass Bill. Uh, and he's talking about how he was in the in the uh, crater. He was resigned to die. He was ready. Uh, but now that he's gotten some hope. He's not. He's unready. He's not ready anymore. He says uh, the trouble with hope is it makes one an awful coward, which is an interesting perspective, and it's sort of that machismo sort of perspective. Uh, you know, to to not want to die is to be a coward uh, in that sense. Um, I, I thought this was really nice, and I thought it was psychologically true. I just think the really he would have lost his willingness to die as soon as he was out of that crater. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, there is an important plot point here that they advance, which is the fact that he's got a wife and he's got sons. Um, mm-hmm. He kind of talks about how his wife is, uh, she's a strong woman. She'll get by and the boys, well, they'll be, you know, they're, 
um, they they need to be strong or something like that. Um, he also mentions, I forget if it's in this scene or not, but he mentions he told his wife he'd be home by Christmas. And so this is Christmas 1914. The war only started in July. Right. And at the time, kind of like the American Civil War, it was thought this is going to be over really fast. Yeah. And they had no clue what they were getting in for. Right. Right. Exactly. So uh, back to the doctor in the tower with Rusty. Um, he, he, the doctor, uh, you know, says to Rusty, look, I'm not coming in there if I if I think you're going to shoot me. So, you know, you have to give me some assurance. So Rusty literally disarms himself uh, by. Yeah. By ejecting the uh, laser uh, thing off his arm um, and tells it, the uh, the Dalek that he wants to access the Dalek hive mind to find out who the glass woman is. Yeah, now they've referred to this before. Um, there, It's sometimes called the Dalek path web. It's basically the Dalek version of the Internet. It's not really a hive mind in the sense of all Daleks constantly know what all other Daleks know. You mean, if that was if that was the case, we would have a lot shorter plots. You mean that the Daleks, um, the, the Daleks aren't the Borg? Resistance the Daleks is futile? Are not, right. The Daleks are not the Borg. But they do have an, an Internet that they can access, you know, through their suits, through and their we, shells. And, and we've seen that before. You know, there was the where uh, the Clara, doctor deleted Clara, himself yeah, from Clara was the yeah. doc was was the uh, was the Dalek. And she deleted the doctor from all memory of the Daleks yeah. in Asylum of the Daleks. If yep. you want to, people want to look up that episode. So we've seen mm -hmm. that before. So um, the, the 12 had left one uh, outside the tower, I think possibly because he, he didn't want uh, Rusty to freak out over two doctors being present. Um, and have so the chance to kill off the doctor that, way before. <laughs> right. Um, and so that's where Bill uh, finds him um, and asks an interesting question about what he was running when he took the TARDIS the first time. Not what was he running away from, but what and he says there were many things, some of which have been established, including the prophecy of the hybrid. Um, we know he was running away because he was afraid he had a role in that. There are illusions scattered through other um uh, episodes and spinoff media to other reasons for leaving, but they've always left it really vague. And here they do too. He just yeah. says there were many reasons. Yeah. Right. Don't forget he got bored. That was one of the reasons. Although he later said that's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's so much a lie though. I think he really was bored. Yep. But what's interesting. So the, the interesting thing is the, is the next question, which is what were you running to? And yeah, nice question. And I'm not so much satisfied with how he responds, and so, but let me say what he what he says. He says mm -hmm. he left to find out why good tends to win over evil, or at least keeps a balance when it seems evil should always win. Uh, that's a, that's actually not a bad question. That is a good question. Why does good tend to win over evil? And mm -hmm. people who ask that philosophical question uh, should have some very interesting answers. Um, but Bill posits, oh, it's a bloke, and I think. What we're supposed oh, to. Oh, yeah, that's totally stupid. Yeah, we're supposed yeah. to think that she's referring to God. Oh, you know. Oh, no, the doctor. <laughs> well, I think initially where our, our the audience's preconceived notion might be that it's God. But we're but then we're, we're told, no, no, she means the doctor is is that bloke. And and this is a problem I have. And, and we've just talked about it before. I know I know you guys have, have uh, also expressed this. The deification of the doctor. 
That, yeah. You know, and that's a problem that that we that really gets ramped up in this episode, which is without the doctor to save us all. The doctor is the savior of the universe. Yes. Everyone in the universe would grow cold. It's like, I'm sorry, get over yourself, series. The doctor is not that important. If he right. was that important, I wouldn't be interested in watching this. Yeah. Because he's no longer an underdog fighting against incredible odds. Well, um, well, I had, to, I had to laugh too when they, they did that whole thing of why does you know evil should always win? And all I could think of was Spaceballs. Evil will always triumph over good because good is dumb. You know, that's all I could think of. <laughs> yeah, I, the, you know, if you stop and think about it, now I I didn't so much mind the question the way he posed it. I might on on rewatches, but the idea that evil should win is like on whose worldview? Yeah. I mean, if if you have if you have a monotheistic worldview, so you believe in God and that God is good and so forth, evil is a defect. It's always by its nature, it's it's inferior. It doesn't meet up to the perfection of God. And so evil shouldn't win. Things that resemble God more on balance will win because they're they're more perfect. On the other hand, if you have an atheistic worldview and you say, well, it's all just chance that's driving everything, then neither those things that we think of as good or those things we think of as evil will have a net advantage over the other. In fact, if in, in, if anything, those things we think of as good will have more survival value and will therefore tend to survive better than those things that don't. So cooperation among members of a species rather than attacking your allies will tend to promote survival value and exactly. help everybody in the long run. So on whose worldview should evil be stronger? I think the idea is supposed to be that um, evil is, un is can be unrestrained. Uh, but, mm -hmm. but the fact is, is what makes evil evil and good good? If there is no God, if there is no absolute standard uh, to apply, then what makes good good and evil evil? Uh, you, you know, so, so who's to say that, you know, th there's a, that there should be a balance or like, it's, it's just, it's, it betrays a certain worldview that it's, it rejects yeah. the, the, the basis, the standard for good and evil, uh, which is God, but wants to rely on it otherwise uh, as an indicator. Because otherwise, you know, well, you know, you say, I mean, in, in the show itself, from a Dalek point of view, they're good. You know, Daleks, we're good. Yeah. We're, we're pursuing a good, which is the destruction of everything that's not Dalek, because what's not Dalek isn't perfect. From there, you know, that's a relativistic point of view. And without an absolute standard for good and evil, that's that's a perfectly acceptable point of view from a for the Daleks. Exactly. Uh, so, so that's the thing that kind of bothers me about this is it's the deification of the doctor and it's sort of this relativist uh, outlook on what good and evil yeah. is. It's a, it's a it, good question. What, what, why does good win and evil not, and evil doesn't, but. Yeah, it, to me, it's of the two, the deification of the do, of the doctor is the bigger problem. Mm -hmm. The other is just an interesting philosophical musing that can inform the psychology of the first doctor, but it's the. <sighs> It, it, the doctor is so important. He's he's just running the universe, man. It's just the braggadocio <laughs> problem on steroids. I, I, I'm sorry if 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 he were that, um, then 
he would cease to be the underdog. And yeah, I know that he really will always survive and he really will almost always win. And that's what I want to see in the series. But I don't want the series flattening that out dramatically by talking about the doctor as someone who always wins and who Mm -hmm. is super important to the universe of the series. That's harming my suspension of disbelief. It's not making him cool. Well, some of the most uninteresting moments in episodes are the ones where you get David Tennant or Matt Smith bragging about it. They're the oncoming storm and they're good. You know, there's uh, or was the comment? uh, I was rewatching some of, uh, World Enough in Time, World Enough in Time and Dr. Falls, because it happened to be on BBC America. And there's a, how, what do you, what do you, how do you stop a whole bunch of Cybermen? Me, you know, it's just like, yeah. really? No. Yeah. yeah. A little more Stephen, a little more self-awareness on Stephen Moffat's part. At one point in Matt Smith's tenure, he had Matt Smith, you know, start deleting himself from things so that he couldn't just walk into places and say, look me up. Exactly. And and he made the comment of, I got a little too big. Well, okay, yeah, that's true. And Stephen Moffat just can't stay away from that, pushing that button. <laughs> I'm hoping Chris Chibnall can. Exactly. You know, it's interesting that uh, Russell T. Davies with uh, The Water of Mars, you know, you had the David Tennant doctor. He was he had gotten to that point. I am going to, you know, change time. I'm going to change the fixed point. And he's and he's shown he up on it. He's he is yeah. hoist on that petard. I mean, he is it it, it, it goes badly for him. Um, mm-hmm. That actually was a, a great way of dealing with the doctor getting all puffed up uh, on himself like that. Exactly. Yeah. So it fundamentally, it makes him unlikable. It doesn't make him cool right. when he gets too big for his britches. So, and then the testimony says, uh, you know, we just needed to understand you, doctor. Yeah, well, okay, so you've got the memories of all these people, including Bill and Nardole, and you don't understand him already? Yep, exactly. I mean, that's a little weak. And so the doctor, uh, you know, the 12th doctor of the tower says he realizes now that it's not an evil plan uh, and doesn't know what to do with it. I actually kind of like that. Um, the you know to have some the doctor realize well now I don't think that these they're really preserving anybody but making a record of people that's a decent goal they're not harming anybody by doing that that's actually kind of neat and I like having the revelation of the thing that the doctor assumed was evil turns out not to be a moral problem after all that's yeah. actually you know nice it's and they, if they wanted to they could have even leveraged that a little bit. Um, to help set up his regeneration of maybe it's a sign of hope for him that not everything in the universe is evil. And so he doesn't have to despair quite as much. Exactly. And they they do kind of comment on that. I think that was a good kind of way of saying of, okay, you know, and and I think that did help lead the 12th doctor to say, okay, I can regenerate because not everything is bad. Not everything is evil. Not everything is going to be out there to, uh, to kill or to hurt or to maim. Instead, there are things out there that are good, that are out there to help and to improve. Yeah. So 
So, so from this point, Rusty kind of drops out of the plot, although it was nice to see him again. <laughs> and, and then I guess we, I don't know, the next scene is we, we're, we're getting back on the TARDIS. We're going to go deposit the captain again. The doctor asks, and as far yeah, he asks to take the, the captain back to his, uh, his moment in time. Um, and, and, and suddenly we're glossing over the wait. Is there any alternative? I mean, that's something that is a question that ought to come up here. Now, we, the audience who've seen this, know that the doctor does have an alternative in the works. But if you're the captain and you've been taken out of this moment in time, there ought to be some discussion of do mm-hmm. we really need to go back? Yeah. Can, can you just put me somewhere else, you know, in some little village somewhere in the middle of nowhere and people won't know who I am and. Nothing like yeah. that. Yeah, at some point someone asks, you know, what's so important about one captain? And, you know, the doctor responds, everybody's important to somebody. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that this is an important person to to, to the doctor. Um, because when yeah, they deposit... No, he doesn't know that. Right. You know, he deposits him He's back. He's going to find that out here now. Yeah. Uh, and and he says, um, you know, that... Uh, <laughs> so me. he says, yeah, he tells him, put him... You know, they put him back to the crater, and he says, you know, would you do me a favor? Will you look after my family? And the first doctor says, oh, of course, absolutely be glad to do it, and tells him that he's a Lethbridge Stewart. And we find out yeah. that he's the grandfather of Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart. The father, I, the father, if I'm not mistaken, because uh, Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart fought in World War II. No, Brigadier's uh, father fought in World War II. Oh, well, okay. I I may be mistaken on that, but one of us is mistaken either way. Um, (laughs) The, but, and then what's nice is 12 then says, oh, you can count on him to do that, which is neat because where the brigadier came in to this series, he wasn't a brigadier yet, but where that character came into the series was with the second doctor. Hmm. So, um, so I guess we're meant to infer that he's been fulfilling that all the way along. Right. Um, one thing that uh, there's also a moment I really like where the, the five year, 5 billion and 12 woman, uh, testimony, um, tells the, um, the captain that he's going to forget them as soon as, as soon as he's back in the crater and a perception filter will keep him from seeing them. And I, I love his response about one imagines that some of those right. words were at, are attached to actual meanings. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> what a great line. <laughs> uh, just correction I want to make. Uh, according to uh, TARDIS Wikia, we've mentioned it dozens of times before, but Archibald Hamish Lethbridge Stewart is the great uncle of the Brigadier. He's hmm. the brother of the grandfather of Lethbridge the Stewart. The cousin of the sister of yes. the father's mother's brother of the- Oh, well. Sorry, that's I'm my own grandpa. Yes. No, I- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and we could tell from the uh, middle name Hamish that uh, the Lethbridge Stewarts are Scottish because the uh, Brigadier yep. showed up in an episode with a kilt once. Yep. Um, and the name Stewart tells us. Well, that. that's true. And it turns out that they've materialized on Christmas Day, 1914. Uh, and the, the the doctor says something about he's adjusted the time. A yeah, bit. he says he put he. And this is another criticism for me on uh, the. So he says he's pushed the time forward a couple of hours in order to have the the final moment of the captain where he's about to get shot be the beginning of the Christmas armistice mm-hmm. of 1914. And and so I, I what he I assume he means by that is he set the because he asks, 
can I take him back rather than letting the 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 testimony do that? Mm-hmm. And so he, what he's done is he knows when the captain came from, presumably because he's got sensors that can detect the origin of the time mm-hmm. paradox. And then he sets the TARDIS's controls to land two hours after that. Correct when he knows the Christmas armistice is going to begin mm-hmm. and thus give the captain a chance to survive. Well, okay, that's all fine, except for the fact that everything here is frozen in time. Correct. And so if all of the watches of the soldiers are frozen in time, then as soon as they're unfrozen, they don't know that um, it's two hours later for exactly. the rest of the world. You know, presumably this and, time bubble existed for two hours. No one noticed the fact that, hey, those yeah. people over there, they haven't moved for two hours. In, What's in going two hours. on? Yeah, that's the other thing. If you say, well, the Germans who start singing were outside of the time bubble, they would have noticed the time bubble in this previous mm-hmm. two hours. Right. Yeah, that was a problem for me. Or, uh, although I wasn't thinking of time bubbles as so much as they stopped time everywhere at once or something maybe they're that powerful enough uh to stop time everywhere but again then how could the doctor drop the guy off a couple hours later is a german sitting alone in that crater for two hours going hey where'd that guy go you know it's yeah yeah that's a problem yeah now this it it they should have handled it some other way yeah i mean it it, i like the fact that we get uh, we get salvation for the captain and we get to see the Christmas truce of 1914. All of that's really great. Mm-hmm. They just needed to set it up better. Now, this Christmas truce is a real event. It really happened. Yes. Yeah. Um, German soldiers started singing uh, uh, Silent Night. The the, the British soldiers uh, started singing it, too. And they all climbed out of their trenches and spent Christmas Eve, you know, playing soccer and drinking and singing and whatever. Um, not killing each not other. Not killing nope. each other. Contrary to the doctor, this isn't the only time this has ever happened. Yeah, um, I know. There were there, this happens a lot. Actually. Yeah, there were smaller truces throughout the First World War. I just read a story about something similar in World War II or the Battle of the Bulge. Um, There's one in the American Civil War. Yeah. So it. Yeah. Yeah. That, but you know, of course, this has got to be Doctor Who. That's got to be the one time in all of history and yeah. all the established <laughs> planets that have ever had war. The one time it happened. Right. Yeah. More hooperbole. <laughs> <laughs> so then we get, uh, you know, so this is what it means to be a doctor of war. Uh, so we we get a payoff on that earlier uh, line. And it's, so it's not. Which then gives David Bradley the reassurance he needs to regenerate. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That, he, he knows that his future is in good hands. Right. He's That he's going to be healing people uh, in, in many instances as opposed to, you know, conducting a war. Um. You know, so it says, uh, for one day, one Christmas, a very long time ago, everyone just put down their weapons and started to sing. Everyone just stopped and were just kind. Um, and there's our hook word back to the speeches to Missy about being kind in The Doctor Falls. That's right. Uh, which is interesting how often, like, so why is Christmas a time when people are kind? Uh, is it because mm, maybe somebody was born on that day that... <laughs> Who isn't the doctor? <laughs> Dom, you're not allowed to say that. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> well, this goes back to end of time when uh, when Timothy Dalton is intoning about the pagan holiday. Oh, yeah, the pagan Christmas holiday. Yes. Yeah. By the way, I, I had uh, I saw some feedback. I think it was on Facebook, but from one of our listeners who said that because we talked about that line. Yeah. 
And one of our listeners said that I just took it as the Time Lords look on all humans as pagans. Right, right. So that's possible that could have been that way. Um, so the Twelfth uh, Doctor says to the First Doctor, they'll he'll find out if he's ready. So they, they kind of say, are you ready to regenerate? And the First Doctor says, yeah, I'm ready now. He says, what about you? He says, well, you'll find out the, by going the long way around. Which is a, be him being a jerk. Exactly. I mean, okay, you got to wait 2,000 years to find out the answer to that question. That's <laughs> that's the response of a jerk. Well, although it's him, you know, so it's like, well, you, you'll you'll experience it. So you'll 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 know. You'll I, get there yeah, eventually. Yeah, it's like, okay, no, 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 no. So I'm the other version of me is suicidal. Exactly. Right now. I want to know if you're still suicidal. <laughs> I don't I don't want to wait until I am suicidal to find that out. That's true. Exactly. So uh, I like the way that they ended the first doctor's uh, time in this one with by going back to the black and white on uh, the original yeah, footage. Get to see Patrick Troughton's face there for a second. Yep. That's awesome. They also did um, a, a, a callback to. um uh, to the regeneration scene in an adventure in space and time, because there's a moment there where as the first doctor, he lays both of his hands on the TARDIS console mm -hmm. and they redo that here. Yeah. My only complaint about it is they didn't show Ben and Polly getting back on the TARDIS because in the yeah, original regeneration a... sequence, they were on the TARDIS with the doctor. They don't show that. And and the TARDIS is going crazy at that moment. Yep. It's a very scary scene yep. in the original. And there's a little bit of a time jump, and they don't play us all the sound effects. Exactly. Um, but, you know, okay, it's, I can handle it for artistic reasons and just know as a fan there's a little bit of a time jump here. So uh, then we still have a little more with uh, Glass Bill and the Doctor, and we get a little bit of, um, I don't know if it's fan service or if it's just Moffat bringing back a favorite character or what, but... Um, she restores the doctor's memories of Clara uh, mm -hmm. in an effort to improve how important memories are. Yeah, and we've got a clunker line here, too, which is meant as a joke, but it's where Clara says that the doctor forgetting her was offensive. And it's like, wait a minute, didn't you take away exactly. his memories? Exactly. Right. Well, because these are not uh, Clara's memories, are they? They're the doctor's memories. Yeah. And so, yeah. But we have... Um, yeah, we have Clara's theme, the music, which I've I've always liked. Uh, uh, By the way, this was a little confusing too because I and it may not matter, but I was I was thinking, is this like Glass Bill becoming Glass Clara for a second, and now the Doctor recognizes her, or what is See, that? That's what I thought happened. Is he yeah. his memory of her was restored, and Glass Bill became her. I think that's yeah. what it was. Happened. Yeah, Both I think happened. I think so. I think they yeah, I think they restored his memory from where I don't know, was there a backup or something or maybe they just had the ability Maybe there was just a, just a memory block or yeah. well they're clearly master memory manipulators, so they can take him out, they can probably put him in. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Uh and so then we uh we we again continue the the old home week and we see uh Glasnardol um Yay! who references yeah. uh they didn't get his hair right. Uh, and, and yeah, you, oh, you're bald. Now, this is so awesome. This is so awesome. Let me explain this for people who may not know. So there is this show that they made that the BBC makes for YouTube called The Fan Show. And 
they and it's hosted by a young British woman and the fan show. It's like Doctor Who, the fan show. And so every week they would come out with an episode of this and they'd talk to people who were um, who were um, involved in the making of the show. They do interviews with them, talk about their characters or talk with writers. And last season they had this stupid segment in every one of the uh, episodes of the fan show called Top of the Locks where they were ranking who has the best hair oh, in every episode. And, of course, Nardole has, like, no hair, and so he was always at the bottom, except when Stephen Moffat appeared, he put Nardole at the top just to be contrary and said, well, he has invisible hair and it's purple. <laughs> and, and so that's what this is a reference to. And I just love the fact that, you know, I, I and I love the fact that I get to see the original of that. It was just a throwaway joke line on, on spinoff auxiliary promotional material that then finds its way in here. Yep. Yeah, it, Doctor Who. If if it does nothing else, it's very good at uh, at canonizing the ancillary uh, material that uh, is is out there. Um, <laughs> so we get a line, you know. So the Doctor starts, uh, you know, Glass Bill and Glass Dart all disappear, and we start to get these uh, the Doctor's monologue uh, ahead of the regeneration um, to his future self. Yes, yep. a life this long is a battlefield, and it's empty because everyone else has fallen. Uh, silly old universe. The more I save it, the more it needs saving. It's a treadmill. Uh, and then he starts to give advice. Uh, never be cruel, never be cowardly, and never ever eat pears, which I think is... Evil is always stupid. Love is always good. Or love is always wise. Yeah. It's a bunch of platitudes, yeah. except for the pear thing. And you were going to say about that, because uh, that does have some backstory. Yeah, I, I, I recall seeing somewhere that there's a that there's a reason he said something about pears. Yeah, so they've mentioned it before on the series, but where my understanding of where it ultimately comes from is a deleted scene or a sped up scene from David Tennant's era. There's an episode called Human Nature where the doctor, for various reasons, has become a human through Time Lord technology, lost his memory of being a Time Lord. But he, before he does that, he leaves a message for Martha Jones, his companion at the time, and he gives her a bunch of different rules and um, one of them in the original recording of this, which we didn't actually see, was he says, OK, rule number five, very important. Don't let me eat pears. I hate pears. <laughs> and and this was something actually that David Tennant just ad libbed when they were recording it. And uh, the BBC didn't allow it to be transmitted because they were afraid it might put children off of eating pears. <laughs> and so they like sped that up so you couldn't understand it. And um, so now I like the fact that even though they the BBC didn't allow it to be said the first time around, now he flat out tells all the children in the world to never eat pears <laughs> at this moment of heightened drama and solemnity. And all the pear producing uh, farmers are all uh, aghast at it. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of this stuff, they, they just, like you said, Jimmy, they, they're a lot of like platitudes. They, they sound profound, but they're really just basic, you know, yeah. advice. And, and there's and they're kind of and this is this speech I'm kind of of two minds about. On the one hand, when people are dying, which is what's happening here on a dramatic level, you know, their last words, they do tend to give advice. And and the advice is, I mean, that's dramatically plausible. And the advice is not going to be anything we've never heard before. 
Um, so that's fine. And it's going to reflect basic values if the person's a good person. So, so you know, that a lot of that's okay. I just thought this was it, it kind of self-indulgent and it went on for too long and it was a little too platitudinous. And it also threw in stuff. It, there are a bunch of winks at the audience to the point that, like, he's got a tick in his eye because <laughs> yeah. um, not just do we have the pair thing, but also he has, like, a run fast line, which is apparently, if I'm not mistaken, it's a callback to the Curse of the Fatal Death comedy mm-hmm. non-canon thing that was the first thing that Stephen Moffat ever wrote for Doctor Who. Uh, that got televised. And then you have this other thing about the doctor's name that just like, and don't tell anybody your name because they wouldn't understand it anyway, except for kids, if their hearts are right and the stars are right, but nobody else ever. That's something that Peter Capaldi said to a child at a public screening event Hmm. and, and that got put in here. And so that's kind of neat. But on the other hand, it just kind of goes on for a while. And there's just a, this speech feels kind of kludged together well, to me and this, this overly felt, long. This almost felt like it was uh, Stephen Moffat saying, hey, I'm going to say everything I've wanted to say in this series. I'm just going to throw it all out there, and there you go. That's my goodbye is this big, yeah. w- long-winded monologue. And, uh, yeah, you're all wait- we all know what's coming, but I'm going to make you wait and listen to my little monologue here first. Right. I mean, it was, it was and- okay. I mean, it was a dramatic. Um, it, it just like when I compared to say like when David Tennant's uh, final episode, that had a lot more emotion and power to it. There, mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. and I felt like he was trying to do that here. I mean, because the Matt Smith regeneration was different, but but here mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I just felt like it wasn't. It did. It, it just didn't have the the emotion and the power in it. Yeah, For, I, I'm I'm I think I'm not a fan. I mean. The Christopher Eccleston regeneration, actually, he his little speech is okay. But as we've gone on, the speeches have become more elaborate. Oh. And and frankly, the Caves of Androzani is still, to my mind, the best regeneration of all time, where Peter Davidson is fighting every minute, and then he saves or sacrifices himself to save a person he barely even knows. We don't get a huge long speech. Yep. Um, to me, that's the real archetype in these kind of long-winded regenerations which just coincidentally happened to blow up the TARDIS. Yeah, that's so they can so they can remake the, the set. Well, it's like it, I'm done with that. Yeah. Just change the desktop theme. Well, it, you don't need to And well, it, the David Tennant one is a good comparison because that was of course Russell T Davies' final scene. That was his final bow right. out. So of course he had to make a yeah. big deal out of it. Well, then now Stephen Moffat is bowing out and he's got to make a big deal out of it. And yeah, I, it, it drives me nuts. This whole let's completely destroy the TARDIS. It was cute once. It's it's I compare it to destroying the Enterprise in Star Trek. You know, when they did mm-hmm. it in the first, you know, the third movie or the second movie, that was a big deal. That was huge. Or your third movie, excuse me, third, third movie. movie. It was huge. It was a big event. How many enterprises have they destroyed since? Right. You know, now it's yeah. like it's every other movie they're destroying the enterprise. It, well, it's yeah. the same kind of thing now. How many and how many targets have they destroyed? You know, and it's just and, like, and, it's been there, done that, move on. Yeah, as, as, and as it's been pointed out, this was never part of Classic Who. This is just no. something. It really started to happen in the Russell T Davies era, and it's it's like 
Guys, if you want a new TARDIS set, just have a new TARDIS set. Yeah, you don't need to have this happen. Well, well you know, I think it points to something I, to a to a, a situation in in Doctor Who that might be a problem going forward, which is um, the the showrunners have become more, more important than anything else in some ways. Mm-hmm. And so the reason they blow up the TARDIS is so that the next showrunner can put his stamp on it, and it's it becomes all about the guys who are writing the show. And less about the show itself, about the characters. Like, like we're in an it's, era it's where, where, the, about, where the showrunner is, is is so much more important than it ever used to be. Yeah, and it's also playing into the need to amp up the drama because right. having that big, big visual spectacle. Even if you had the Doctor regenerating outside of the TARDIS, if he's blowing up everything around him, right? You know. It's just it, I don't need regeneration to be that. It never was that no. before the new era, and it doesn't need to be that now. And frankly, I'm tired of that. Well, and it, it, I mean, you look back too, and with the new era, at least there were excuses. You know, Christopher Eccleston. There was the whole thing about absorbing the time vortex, whatever that, that meant. That's that something yeah, huge. That's the one with the excuse. Well, even yeah. even David Tennant's where Matt supposedly he bit. you know he absorbed all that toxic radiation. And by expelling it is what destroyed the TARDIS. You know, that was the excuse there. But then you get Matt Smith, where it's, he gets his whole new life, and all of a sudden he's throwing around this, you know, the Artron energy like it's a laser beam. And then now you get Peter Capaldi, where he's throwing it around and destroying the TARDIS. Why? We really don't know why his was so destructive. Well, with lightning bolts, apparently, uh, in this one, it was a, yeah. it was a new regeneration yeah. effect that they had going here. Um there was one line that at the very end, when he was doing his monologue, just before the regeneration, he says, "Doctor, I let you go," and I wonder. Yeah. And it felt a little like that was Capaldi himself, mm-hmm. you know, or mm-hmm. or Moffat in his voice. It also calls calls back. Yeah, I think both. It mm-hmm. also calls back to. They set it up a little bit earlier where he's talking to Glass Bill, yeah. and she says, "You know what? The hardest thing about le- leaving you was it was le- it was letting you go." And and so this is him harking back to that line. But on a meta level, it really is Peter Capaldi and Stephen Moffat saying it. Right. Yep. Exactly. And so we have the regeneration into uh, Jodie Whittaker. Um, we see we see at one point they make it make a specific visual imagery of the doctor's ring falling off her finger. Right. Mm-hmm. Symbolism. Well, meaning? it calls back to the first regeneration. Uh, because in the in the Power of the Daleks, the ep- the first episode of of the Second Doctor, Patrick Troughton, Ben picks up his ring. I think it was Ben that picked up the Doctor's ring that the first Doctor yeah. wore, and it didn't fit Patrick Troughton. Yeah. So that's I think right. I think there was that. that's good. I think there was a call. That's what the callback was was to that first regeneration, that connection where because of course mm-hmm. now remember uh, Power of the Daleks just came out what a year ago something like that. As a re-release, on well, on I watched it on big screen. I went and watched it in oh. a theater when they first mm-hmm. re-released it as a an animated. So, very likely, people who are Doctor Who fans now would have seen it like I did, and would have recognized mm-hmm. that connection, saying, "Okay, this is a connection. We just saw the first Doctor regenerate, and now we see this Doctor regenerate, and you have the same thing happen where the ring falls." There's there's also there are also other similar things where like in Matt Smith's regeneration, he lets his bow tie fall to the ground. So we've seen articles of clothing fall to the ground before at a regeneration. Okay. Um, 
the some people connected it to River Song, like maybe that's a wedding ring or something, but it's not designed like a wedding ring, and I don't think that would stop them. The gender change, I don't think no. that would stop them these right. days. Um, one. So speaking of of the gender change, let me inter- in, inject something before we talk about what actually happens mm-hmm. here, because it's just part of my fear for the future of the series. They, I, I totally don't care about the doctor being a woman. I, 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 I would argue that it's a decision that could be justifiable under two circumstances: either if you're just coming back with the series after a cancellation, or if you're afraid it's about to be canceled, doing it as a rating stunt. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, it's if you've had a whole string of male doctors, just like if you've had a whole string of James Bonds or a whole mm-hmm. string of Sherlock Holmeses, a sudden gender change for no apparent reason just comes off as virtue signaling. And um, and and in this case, the ratings have been slipping. Yep. And this could be th- one of those circumstances I mentioned where they said we need to shake things up in a big way. Because the ratings are slipping, let's try a, a woman doctor. Right. Okay, fine, R- decent dramatic choice. But unfortunately, it's also it, it, it's also a divisive decision, or as they might say in England, a divisive decision. <laughs> um, it's going to split the fan base. It already has talking as if, oh no, only a few bigots have a problem with this. N- that is not true. Um, you know, you look at YouTube and the videos people are making about this. This is not a wildly popular decision in all quarters. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means that it's a risk. Are you going to pick up more viewers than you lose um, as a result of this? Because they're going to lose some. They already have people saying, I'm done with this. This is Doctor Who is dead to me. Um, but there's another unfortunate coincidence here in that we're going into the 13th doctor Mm -hmm. and that sets it up for failure when you're taking a risk because it creates a narrative for every single time something doesn't work right. And not everything is not going to go right all the time. Right. And every single time something doesn't go right, it feeds, it can feed into a media narrative of, ah, Unlucky Doctor 13, mm-hmm. which can then further depress ratings by creating an anti-Doctor uh, Who narrative. Because as Sherlock told us, the media always turns. And um, so uh, there is a line, right? It's actually the line where Peter Capaldi decides to regenerate that I just kind of got chills, where he says, oh, what well, one more lifetime won't kill anybody except me. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking cancellation on the horizon. You know, Jodie Foster may be the last doctor. Whit- Whitaker. Um, <laughs> Whitaker. Jodie Whitaker. Sorry. <laughs> Dr. Oh, Freud, I mean, Jodie Foster would probably do a better job. Um, but uh, so Jodie Whitaker may be the last doctor. She may only get, you know, two or three seasons and then that may be it for a while. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of got in in light of all this swirling stuff, I, I just kind of got chills at that moment and right. thought, I wonder the extent to which Stephen Moffat was consciously planting that line or intended it to have a potentially prophetic meaning. Well, and, and I know Stephen Moffat had talked about having a, a woman doctor for quite a while. He actually had been pretty much, he pretty much talked about it even before he took over as showrunner. And well, he's a world-class virtue signaler. Yeah. Well, and, and, I think even he was he was very skeptical of the idea. Um, 
And I know we've talked about this before. Again, we talked about this back when they announced Jodie Whittaker as the new doctor. Uh, we've talked about this since. How they handle it going forward is going to determine if this was a great decision or not. You know, I saw one uh, post I just pulled up here off of the Doctor Who Reddit sub or Doctor Who subreddit and about how this is a clean sweep right now. Right mm -hmm. now, everything is clean. Everything is back to classic Who. And, you know, the Time Lords are back. Gallifrey is back. The Doctor is a renegade. And all this stuff going on, you know, it's very much a clean sweep. Mm -hmm. How they go forward will determine how long this show lasts. You know, are they, is it going to be, and one thing I'm glad about, one thing I'm very glad about getting into the actual regeneration, they didn't do the immediate, I'm a woman now. Oh yeah. I mean, they, they underplayed it. All she says is, oh, brilliant. Yeah, exactly. And she says it, in, she says it in a Yorkshire accent. So we're going back to that, you know, but it, it's, they did not immediately, you know, oh, I'm a woman now. This is wonderful. No, they just, they left it alone. Uh, yeah, and that, that's good. They needed to do that. And if they un keep it that way, if they keep it that way, go ahead. it's going to keep the series. If they start again doing yeah. what they did with Bill, where every other episode, I'm a woman now. I'm a woman now. I'm a woman now. Forget it. People are going to tune out. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I They will shrink their fan base if they do that. Um, Marvel Comics has been experiencing a massive loss of readership yep. due to SJW politics. And if Doctor Who does the same thing, the fans will react the same way they do exactly. in comics. Um, so I'm fine with Female Doctor. They need to underplay the female fact. They need to, in other words, not make a big deal of it, just like they haven't made a big deal of, I'm a man in the past. Yep. You know, um, the, uh, but they're already... You can already see how a, a problematic narrative can develop because no sooner. I mean, I hadn't even seen this episode yet. I had seen the final, the final regeneration bit because they released it early. Yep. yep. The BBC did. So I saw that. But uh, I hadn't even seen the episode yet when people in other time zones were commenting on Facebook. Woman driver. She broke the TARDIS. Yep. I saw and that. So yeah. you can just see how easy a negative narrative can develop as a result of this. And they really need to be careful um, not to give people excuses to do that. And because it, it, it doesn't hurt to say, well, if you just reveal your bigotry, if you have such a reaction, it's like, well, that may be true, but you need eyeballs if you want to keep the series you need to be able to appeal to a broad swath of people and entertain them and not just be entertaining to right. the virtue signaling crowd. Well, and, and, and frankly, the lazy, the lazy response to something like that is the, uh, well, you're sexist. That's the lazy response, yeah. you know, but, and unfortunately that's what we see on Facebook and Reddit, et cetera, et cetera, is the lazy response. So, yeah. So now, um, yep. Talking about it, it, we could. I was going to say we could talk about what actually happens in this scene if you want, Dom. Unless you had another point you wanted to make. No, no, I was going to move on. But if you had more to say about about this, that would be fine. No, no, no. I was going to say I liked how the scene played out overall. I, I mean, I understand conceptually the oh brilliant, and it kind of leaves us wanting more. But I was kind of left wanting more. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that was good. That was good. And I and I in particular liked the so the falling out of the TARDIS way above the ground in an impossible to survive situation. I'm not sure. It's like kind of been there, done that. Well, didn't um, we see that with Matt Smith? Right? 
So, well, we saw something very similar. Well, he, was he wasn't hanging, this hanging. high off the earth. He was well, hang, well, he was hanging on the bottom yeah. of it, basically. Well, that's the thing. Is, right. is I, I think Moffat uh, ends where he began, right? Oh, With no, the doctor this hanging seems, out. This is this was written by Chris Chibnall. Oh, it was. Um, so yeah. So when the uh, when when Russell Davies left, he left the last scene with Matt Smith to Stephen Moffat to write, and now Stephen Moffat left left the last scene with Jodie Whittaker to Chris Chibnall to do. So this is all Chris Chibnall from this point. And I'm not sure how I feel about the falling out of the TARDIS so far above the earth in a. It's kind of not a cliffhanger. She didn't hang on. Yeah. Um, well, but having having done that, I loved watching the inside of the TARDIS burning and vanishing in front of her. I thought that was a really great visual. Well, and, and it was kind of funny because you see the TARDIS turn over and it's almost like it's shaking her out. You see a couple of oh, times it kind of be. pops a couple of times like it's shaking her out and then she eventually falls off. But and again, you know, the, the whole idea of destroying the TARDIS, really, you, you could figure some way to do it better. Yeah, I thought of this more as losing the TARDIS yeah. um, so that when she finds it again, it'll have a nice, sparkly, new, regenerate, regenerated interior. Hopefully that looks more classic. Who? You know, and, and what, what I'm what I'm thinking is going to happen is I'm hoping they will continue this. They won't just do a, oh, well, the doctor somehow survived and now he's got the TARDIS back and everything's good. Yeah, but they'll actually continue it. And I'm sure it's going to be something like, well, because she's in the middle of her regeneration, she'll hit the ground and get up and walk off. Something like that. They could well do that. Or, yeah. you know, gets, in which case, gets knocked out cold. It gets, gets found by her com- new companions or something like that. You know, she could spend the first 20 minutes in a hospital bed like uh, the eighth doctor did. Yeah. My guess <laughs> is that uh, the TARDIS rematerializes under her. And she falls out. Oh, there you I go. would I, like I that. I thought that, that one, too. Yeah, that, that's yeah. good. That would be nice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, speaking of predictions, I'd like to note that uh, I predicted when we watched the trailer, we discussed the, the trailer for uh, the Christmas special, um, that I did predict that uh, uh, Mark Gaddis would be playing the the, the Brigadier. Uh, although you pointed out that we he did, couldn't be the Brigadier because right. it was World War One, So I was close. <laughs> yeah, you were close. For the record. By the way, and and they didn't pay off another fan theory that was out there, which was also plausible, which was that he was going to be the guy who invented the police box. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Because he kind of even makes the comments would... about the, these police boxes are rather helpful, aren't they? So police yeah, boxes did come into, awfully good. come into being around the end of the 19th uh, century, beginning of the 20th century. Although the blue police boxes didn't um, weren't created until 1929. So, right, uh, and there was a guy who fought in World War One who who designed right. those. Well, so so um, so if we're done talking about the episode itself, I have a recommendation for people. Okay, um, if you liked David Bradley's performance as the first Doctor in this, there's more David Bradley as the first Doctor. It's already out. Big Finish has just released its first audio set. With uh, David Bradley as the doctor, uh, you can go to bigfinish.com to download that. They have another set coming out in July, but in this first one, they have like four hours of of David Bradley as the as the doctor. Oh, uh, let's see, we're we're losing Jimmy again. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> right at the end. Right at the end. Uh, well, so what he was saying is, if you go to bigfinish.com, they do have the. The Doctor Who uh, First Doctor Adventures with David Bradley. Uh, There's some now. There'll be some coming out in July. Uh, I also wanted to mention that, um, you know, as a programming note, between now and uh, the next time we're going to see 
new Doctor Who should be probably about um, September. Nothing's been said officially yet, but that's been the latest guesses. Um, so uh, until then, we'll we'll continue doing our rewatch of uh, of of Doctor Who. You know, season nine, and then later. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, the ninth Doctor, not season nine, the ninth Doctor, and later. Um, then we'll uh, we did want to do maybe we'll do a retrospective of Stephen Moffat's era. Uh, but our next episode is going to be we're going to discuss Shada, which will be a couple weeks because Jimmy and I are still trying to get hold of uh, the DVDs of that. Yeah, I was I was able to get it ordered uh, when it first released, but it still took over two weeks to get here uh, right before Christmas. So that's understandable. Um, my by the way, kind of a spoiler. I think it's worth watching. It's a, it's a fun episode. Um, it's if you like classic who, especially Tom Baker, get it. So we'll uh, we'll talk about that and we'll have some fun with that, I think. Yep. So we did have some feedback from folks uh, from some of our uh, recent episodes. Um, we, speaking of the the um, David Tennant regeneration story, the end of time. Uh, Amy Flowers on Facebook uh, was talking about uh, that's where the the where she was telling us about the pagan reference about non time lord holidays are considered pagan. Mm-hmm. Um, she mentioned uh, her personal favorite focus was Donna Noble. Uh, the chemistry mm-hmm. between Catherine, she says, the chemistry between Catherine Tate and David Tennant sparkles. It's no wonder they continue to work together even today. Uh, Donna is more like the doctor's equal and doesn't hold back in keeping him in check. He brings her up <laughs> from her low self-esteem and makes her see how amazing she is. Yep. It does make, as Jimmy points out, her fate so tragic to see it all wiped away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, uh, I, admit, I think every yeah. Doctor Who fan loved her. Oi, spaceman. Exactly. You know, I did. I I did. I did like Donna Noble uh, for for a couple of reasons. One, there was no romantic tension. It just uh, she I made was, that clear. She made that clear. That was right. not going to happen. And so you you take that <laughs> off the table, and it becomes enjoyable to just uh, to just watch them play off each other as two people without having that that tension there. But also, um, the, just uh, she's just funny. I mean, they're funny together, mm-hmm. and she, it just it was uh, I, I and she stood up to him. She wasn't awed by him at well, all. At all. And what was uh, so funny about her is she was really meant to be a one-off character. She was just meant to be yeah. that Christmas special, the, the runaway bride special. Right. And uh, it turned out so well. They're like, let's bring her back for a season. It, it, so, uh, and also, um, a, uh, Amy says, uh, there's a scene with heavy implication about the woman that Wil- Wilfred keeps seeing being the doctor's mother. At Donna's wedding, Wilfred asks the doctor who the woman was. And the doctor looks at Sylvia with Donna. They're out of focus in the background. Right. And she says, it's subtle, but it's there. So that's that's pretty interesting. So then um, Bennett Gillespie, also on Facebook, our, uh, our uh, resident uh, expert on the British culture, uh, because he's uh, from uh, Britain, says that guns held by retired soldiers is in reality a well-worn writing trope to give the good guys a gun in an inoffensive way within a society where there are very few legally held guns. Especially someone of Wilfred's age, who one would suppose got it from World War II, so there's an implied heroic association with the action. Um, he, his guess is that it happens more often in literature than in real life. So, mm. uh, and then uh, we got an email from uh, Jan from Portland about the um, the Eleventh Doctor's Matt Smith's regeneration episode. We talked about uh, they went to, they're going to Christmas dinner with Clara's family, and we're like, oh, it's Clara's mom and dad. So uh, Jan says she did a little research on Clara's family since I, uh, I she says, I did not believe that her mom could have been present. I know Tommy mm-hmm. Wyman could always play a role, but her mom's funeral took place 
while the doctor was still trying to find Clara. The credits listed the character as Linda, while Clara's mom was Ellie. The Doctor Who Wikia app said that uh, Linda, played by Elizabeth Ryder, and also the voice of Atmos, which is interesting, mm. was a family member or friend. But it also said that according to the official Doctor Who website, Linda was Clara's stepmom. Mm. So, And then she said it was a nice touch to see the uh, dish of fish fingers and custard on the TARDIS at the end. <laughs> yes, uh, the full circle. So yeah. some uh, some nice feedback. Thank you, folks, for that. Uh, I'm trying to see if we can get Jimmy back just real quickly, just to say goodbye. I'm sorry he wasn't here for the feedback uh, portion of the show. Um, just very quickly. See, and uh, I, I I appreciate uh, uh, Father Corey and Jimmy. If you if I seem to drop out once in a while, ah, Jimmy, uh, we we were just discussing the feedback that uh, that I'm sorry that you missed. Um, oh. I'm sorry that you. Sure. Uh, dropped off so are y'all are y'all done with the episode no we're just well, about to do our sign off so i just wanted to bring you oh, back okay. in time I, to... I assumed y'all would just wrap up without me hang on let me uh oh sure because we were so close to the end you know yeah yeah i just wanted i was just reading the feedback from uh amy flowers and bennett gillespie um and jan from portland who sent us an email um and uh i, I wanted to um just kind of mention so i mentioned that we're gonna talk about we're gonna talk about Shada next. It won't be next week. Um, like I said, we get, need some time for Jimmy and I to get our copies uh, shipped over from uh, from uh, Great Britain. So uh, we're going to need to be able to watch it and then you know be able to uh, comment on it. So it'll be a couple weeks, but this is an extra long episode of Doctor uh, Secrets of Doctor Who anyway, so you will you can listen to this over the course of the next couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, like I said, we'll, we'll have new episodes of Doctor Who Presumably, the new season will be in the fall. That's the the last we've heard about that. Um, right. So, uh, unless there's anything else, uh, that's it from us. So, uh, why don't you drop us uh, an email or send us a, a a message on Facebook to let us know what what did you think of Twice Upon a Time, the Twelfth Doctor's regeneration, the 2017 Christmas special. Uh, let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page. Leave us some feedback or send an email to Doctor Who at sqpn.com. Uh, first, I want to first thank uh, Jimmy and uh, Father Corey for helping me through this episode. In case you didn't notice, I've, I'm still getting over a cold. And there were several moments in this episode where I was overcome <laughs> with coughs and couldn't talk. And they, they ably held up the conversation. Uh, perhaps you didn't even notice. And that would be to their credit. Uh, so you can find links to all our personal social media and our websites on our show notes on sqpn.com we'll be uh back soon when we'll discuss the fourth doctor lost episode shada uh, until then jimmy aiken thank you for sharing in the secrets of doctor who thank you dom and father Corey stika thank you as well oh my pleasure and happy new year to you both of you uh, uh, happy new year and once again i'm dom bettinelli thank you for listening and remember Love hard, run fast, be kind. When will I see you again? Uh, soon, I expect. Or later. One of those.